The information presented is in no way to be considered as a standard of care, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnoses, or treatment. The information is provided with no guarantee. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the providing of medical, legal, or regulatory advice. Good morning. Welcome to this edition of Blue Crew Medicine. Uh, today we're going to do, we have always done it this way, questioning dogma and trauma. So today, first we've got joining us is Dr. Zaza, who's board certified in general surgery and surgical critical care, one of our awesome trauma surgery attendings joining us today. Um, and then again, uh, first time on the pod. And then uh, Dr. Taylor Walks is joining us again, one of our uh, third year EM residents. And then I'm Will Appleby, one of the air care CCPs and educator for air care. So welcome, guys. Glad you can join us today. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having us. This is our bonus content and continuation of our Dogma and Trauma podcast with Dr. Zaza, Dr. Wax, and myself. Hope you enjoy. Anything else you all can think of that you want to disprove or discuss? Actually, I found a really cool article um, on an uh, EMS website. Let me pull it up. That had a lot of these... Pretty small things, but it was it was really cool. We can talk about some of them. I've actually learned some new things from this. All right. So the first one is never insert nasal airways in head injured patients. <laughs> that was a cool one. Yeah. I've actually taught that a lot um, and try to avoid it as much as possible when I don't know the pattern of injury in a blunt trauma patient, especially with suspected head trauma, significant facial trauma. Um, but... Basically, the bottom line is the complication of having any sort of intracranial insertion with nasogastric tubes or nasal airways is extremely low. There's like two or three reported cases ever. Um, now, does that mean it just doesn't happen more and we just don't know about it? It's possible. Um, but relatively speaking, it's pretty safe um, as long as you're doing it using the correct technique. The most important part of it being stop when you feel pressure when you <laughs> don't, feel resistance don't, don't force it don't force it when you feel resistance stop i mean uh, when we do scan these patients and whatnot the, the number of patients that have a true crepiform plate fracture or disruption is extremely low um, if it's going to be the difference between that and like intubating them when you're not comfortable with it or something or putting in an oral airway and making them gag and vomit and aspirate think it's reasonable especially with a nasal airway versus a nasogastric tube. i can see where a nasogastric tube you do feel some resistance sometimes you have to push through it when you're putting it in so you don't yeah. know but with a nasal airway i mean it goes in pretty short you know maybe not shove it all the way in but um that was a cool one i don't know your thoughts on that yeah I'd, i've i've never had got debunked by a friend of mine a while back about showing me the ct scan there's one famous ct scan on ng tube that's curled up in somebody's head this is like one of three ever is yeah. what the, and the same thing is for me, nasal airways never, it was always OG tubes or nasally intubating somebody. I've never had an issue with nasal airways personally. I've been like, they're too short. They're not going to do anything. They're so flimsy on yeah. the end of them. They're not, they're not rigid enough to me that they're going to push through something. Yeah. That OG tube or NG tube, it's got that tip on it. Same with the ET tube that kind of, I can see it. But. Yeah. I think it's reasonable that any patient that, I mean, patients who need, gastric tubes are patients that are intubated let's clarify that yeah. um and if they're intubated i mean it's just not worth it to put something in the nose just put it in the in the oropharynx it's 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 right. usually way easier anyways to get it down so it's not a huge deal but nasal airways can be very significant especially 
in pre-oxygenating someone that's about to be intubated and just kind of maximizing or minimizing the the peri-intubation hypoxia potentially, especially if they have a head injury. And you brought a good point. If it's a bridge to be put yourself in this place where you're not comfortable intubating somebody or you don't have the right pharmacological agents or you don't have the right blood pressure or whatever it is, I would rather you do that every day of the week, put an nasal airway in and 100%. support them breathing, let them breathe naturally, support their breathing, yeah. and you, you know, have yeah. a poor outcome. And we still teach it in ATLS. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's not that frowned upon, but it's, it's kind of cool to see that there's actually studies been done on it. Uh, the other one um, is about lidocaine in RSI that it prevents um, increased in, in intracranial pressure in head injured patients, and that's been debunked. But actually, this one brings up a really cool uh, point about ketamine. So for the longest time, even I thought ketamine was, was, was bad for your intracranial pressure until when I was a fellow, one of the ICU pharmacists taught me that that was wrong. That's actually been debunked. So ketamine, perfectly safe in, uh, to use in head trauma patients. Um, as an alternative to other induction agents, um, and even for just agitation control and pain control and things like that. So that was a really important one for me to learn and to kind of reinforce because it's one of those things they get taught early on that ketamine increases ICP, it doesn't. Uh, I'm glad that we got debunked. I don't use ketamine personally in my whole practice a whole, whole lot, but sometimes that's all you got, or sometimes that's the better option, especially on younger patients. I, I worry about with the patients that are truly catecholamine depleted they're older septic patients that are this has been going on for a couple of weeks and you give them bolus ketamine and that's all their catecholamines and they literally go into rest on your try to pretty hard those are the ones i worry about ketamine with the younger trauma patients uh they're folks on our team that literally use it daily yeah uh, for induction for rsi and it phenomenal it's amazing that there are more drugs than intomidate <laughs> and they last a little longer too Drives me insane. I know. I know. <laughs> All right. Another one, uh, backboards. Um, that's another kind of misconception about trauma patients that they have to be immobilized on a backboard. Uh, backboard is purely for ease of transport. That's it. You should get rid of it as soon as possible. I mean, it takes as little as 30 minutes to start developing pressure ulcer changes um, in the skin. So especially with these elderly patients that have very little... Um, muscle and fat mass, they're really, really susceptible to it. So use it only as absolutely necessary for transport, for ease of transport. And as soon as you can get it off, get it off. I like uh, one of the previous episodes we had Aiden on here and he was talking about how, you know, if you're seeing flight close to facility, you got 10, 15 minutes, okay, and you're really trying to get them to source control, it may not be worth your time. But if you got somebody that's you're flying them or you're moving them greater than 30 minutes, 45 minutes, maybe, especially for us on the aircraft side of it, if you see us go out there and like, Hey, we're going to assume from your stretcher to our stretcher. And when we do it, we're going to literally take them off the board or slide them off the board. I've gotten some weird looks over the year. I'm like, I, I promise this is going to be a whole lot easier for them and a whole lot better for them downstream. Mm -hmm. um, and boards just are, man, they're painful. If you ever laid on one, if you or if you haven't laid on one, I would urge you to try it. I can only imagine. Maybe in a, in a little while, we'll, a couple of years, we'll come back and do this and say the same thing about sea collars. Uh, well, uh, so I was going to talk about that right next. So uh, along the same vein, um, spinal motion restriction, right? Um, I think there's a misconception between immobilization and restricting motion, right? 
So the C caller, its only purpose, and I still don't understand why the first thing we do here is switch them to a soft caller, literally before we even have a blood pressure reading, but that's another point. Um, but it's, it's purely to remind the patient to minimize their motion. Don't right? move. That's all I'm, I'm telling you. Hey, man, this ain't really going to stop it. you from moving. This right? is going to tell you. Yeah, don't you do can it. move within it. We know that, right? Nine out of 10 callers are not to size or, you know, patient's chin is slipped in and whatnot. It's just a reminder to restrict the movement as much as possible. Same with the thoracic and lumbar spine, right? Um, that's why we log roll patients. It's just to prevent extreme motions and twisting of the spine, right? Um, that's really it. it you're just kind of restricting where you're not immobilizing. Immobilizing them is bad. It's gonna again. The backboard was thought of as an immobilizer for the for the thoracic and lumbar spine. You give them pressure ulcers. You're restricting their their ability to to ventilate. Um, you're potentially you know putting them in a situation where if they start vomiting and whatnot, they can't move. Things like that. So just use it with caution. You mean we're not supposed to hold down the agitated trauma patient? You're supposed to, to put a collar on, especially when their pressure is 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 undetectable and they not are. Existent. <laughs> non existent. We're waiting on the third time for the automatic cuff to yeah, take. Yeah, we're just all standing watching it. <laughs> Brings up an interesting point, though. KEDs, you know, I was baby in EMS, and we one of the EMT checkoffs to this day is still using a KED. They're very rarely used, but if you really want to immobilize somebody, that's probably the safest way to do it. What's a KED? So that's that big, fancy green device that has wooden slats that literally fits around here. And it doesn't, um, it is truly for your thoracic and lumbar and up. And then it comes up behind your head, um, kind of holds your ears. There's two Velcro straps. One goes this way and one goes this way. They're still in the collar usually. Um, but it's used more often than not with extrication. Now, what would happen a lot of times is they would be in a really bad car wreck. They're entrapped. They're having to cut them out. And so they're saying they have some kind of neurological deficit. That's what they're intended for. Some kind of neurological deficit mm -hmm. already before they can cut them out. Okay, well, we're going to mobilize them with this KED or this Kendrick track, uh, extrication device. Oh. And pull them out. And then they can, then we, what the problem was is what happens as soon as you get them out, they would take them out of the KED, put them on a backboard, and then everything's forgotten. Myth number five, patient extrication with the KED prevents spine movements. Exactly. That was my next <laughs> point. You, I skipped that one because I didn't I, di I didn't know what it was, but so it you, didn't register in my head. But yeah, that's there it is. If you're trying to mobilize somebody, if you truly pat it, I can see it working. But KEDs, to me, it's great to get somebody out of a car like that. I can't. It's better than a backboard. It's better than some other things because it wraps around you and holds you in place. But it still doesn't really work. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean. The likelihood of you hurting someone while extricating them is extremely little. I mean, you yeah. have to really, really twist their spines one way or another, you know. Um, so I, I wouldn't worry about that too much. The important thing is to extricate them. So another, this one was cool because I actually practice it quite a bit. Um, Trendelenburg position. Mm -hmm. So this goes back again to Dr. Cannon, um, who suggested using that uh, for... Um, while resuscitating patients with hemorrhagic shock. And it's derived from a German surgeon who used to use it just simply for better exposure in surgery to shift the organs, cephalad. Um, and it's not really shown to be benefit beneficial in shock. Um, it does 
have an increase in venous return to the heart. It's not that much. I mean, we know from passive leg raise tests that it's about 250 cc's. Um, and it's pretty transient. You know, maybe it may last a couple of minutes. I still use it if the patient is in arrest or peri-arrest. Because sometimes that 250cc is what I need until I get access and get some blood in them. So it's fine. Um, but got to use it for the lot of precaution, right? If your patient is not intubated um, and they're about to lose their um, awareness and their sensorium, you can cause them to aspirate, obviously. So you got to be very careful with that. You're going to, again, alter their um, ventilation perfusion. So you're causing issues with that. So it should be used very intentionally and very transiently because um, we see it all the time in the ICU especially when a patient is sick and we're giving them pressors and volume and whatnot they stay in Trendelenburg position for hours um, and I think that's that's where it can be really bad because that, that's going to increase your rate of ventilator associated pneumonia significantly because one of the very few things that have been shown to actually decrease your rate of ventilator associated pneumonia is having your head of bed elevated above 30 or 40 degrees um, and so just simply laying the patient flat is bad, um, especially if they're blunt trauma patients, you're causing increase in their um, ICP by impeding the drainage of venous blood from their head. Yep. So if you're going to use it, use it very transiently, uh, very briefly, and um, you know, do it just as a, something to buy a little bit of time to get product in them. Oh, this one is extremely important. And you kind of touched base on it earlier, uh, and it reminded me of this point. So something we're taught all the time, radial pulse means 80 systolic, <laughs> carotid means 60, femoral means 70. That is absolutely not true. No. All right. So that is not, that gives you a false reassurance um, and can be really, really bad for the patient. So let me tell you a story um, I heard on the EM crit. Uh, podcast uh, about this issue. So um, there's a patient, um, it was an anesthesiologist telling the story. They had a patient in the OR, some relatively benign procedure, um, and they just couldn't get a blood pressure on her. And the whole time she had a palpable radial pulse. So they assumed an AD systolic at least. So they tried to put lines, they tried this and that. It was very prolonged. Patient ended up with anoxic brain injury and died. The lesson from that was, especially in patients that are intubated um, and sedated, is your normal response to being in shock of having vasoconstriction with the medications that we give, that can be very easily blunted. You can still have palpable pulses because a pulse is nothing but a pressure dif pressure differential, right? So 120 over 80 or 20 over zero is still gonna give you some differential in pressure, right? Um, and so that's a, that was a very important lesson um, for, for, for me um, to not rely on palpable pulses as a indicator of certain pressure. A palpable pulse is a palpable pulse, it just means there's pressure, the heart is beating, all right, keep going. Um, it just means they're not pulseless. So be careful about that. It's been studied, showed a 
you know, that a lot of times patients with pressure way less than 80 still have a radial pulse. Um, so you can very um, inaccurately think that a patient is doing well when they're not. Definitely. It goes along with art lines. To me, I, again, before I started flying with air care, I never really dealt with art lines, and now I put them in every day. But a cuff pressure versus an art line versus a radial pulse, it's fun. It, it is truly entertaining to me to watch, say, oh, yeah, they got a blood pressure of 120 over 80. You put an art line in, and they've got a 60 over 30. Well, they got a great radial pulse. Yeah, they do. Doesn't mean it's good. Especially these young patients, right? They These can young compensate patients, really well. They have soft vessels. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of them are pretty skinny. Can very easily palpate a pulse when, again, it's just a pressure differential. Um, that brings up a really nice point real quick about A-lines in shock. Um, and I love that you guys put in A-lines. Uh, absolutely. It's, it's so helpful when a patient is really sick and they come in already with that because it eliminates a lot of time and, and, and effort in trying to, to establish that blood pressure. Um, but in patients with shock, a central A-line, and that's very difficult um, thing for a lot of people to interpret when I say put in a central A-line. They're like, wait, you want this, another central line? They already have a central line. I'm like, no, no. A central A-line is an A-line that is you know, either an axillary or a femoral A-line. And that's later in their resuscitation once you've, you've done everything and you just want more better accurate readings. But the idea is when you're in shock, again, you have that peripheral vasoconstriction. And so your radial A-line may not be as accurate. However, your map is still going to be the same. So it almost doesn't matter as much. Um, you know, we know radial A-lines can later, you know, have a higher rate of clotting and malfunction and whatnot. And you can just do it then. It's not mandatory. Um, it's just something to think about later down the line if someone isn't going to be in shock for a long time, if they're septic or whatnot. But the map is still going to be the same, so it shouldn't alter your management that much. So this one talks about the golden hour, the idea of the golden hour um, in trauma. That's another thing. Man, you're hitting all my, all my buttons. <laughs> something we, get, we got taught very early on is, you know, you have one hour to get a patient um, to definitive care before, you know, things start being um, having bad outcomes and that's been disproven um, and so when they looked at transport times and uh, patient outcome mortality whatnot it really didn't matter um, how quickly you got them to the to the trauma center except if they're hemorrhaging right so um, which makes sense again you know if they have a traumatic brain injury what's the treatment prevent hypoxia prevent hypotension you don't need to. You don't need a neurosurgeon to do that, right? There are very, very few indications for operative uh, neurosurgical intervention, um, and most patients don't need that. And so, getting them um, to the higher level of care earlier doesn't really make much of a difference. Um, again, it's, it's, it applies to everything else. Obviously, orthopedics, injuries, um, all these things. But in cases of hemorrhage. It's actually not a golden hour, it's 30 minutes. And so studies that looked at preventable death and trauma, right, in patients that are salvageable, so we're talking about hemorrhagic, hemorrhagic shock patients, really you have 30 minutes to intervene, not an hour. So it's actually the opposite. So the first part of it is, it doesn't matter how quickly you get them there, but if they're hemorrhagic, it's actually less than an hour. It's 30 minutes is when that peak mortality happens. That's when you want to get them to definitive hemorrhage control. Um, so um, I think that 
changes a lot of our patterns of urgent transport, obviously for you guys and how quickly you need to get them um, and things like that. I think it's important to consider for anyone who's making those rules um, and considerations, again, to reserve resources and, and be cognizant about it. It's all about as long as you get the care to the patient, you're okay in 90% of them. It's those 10% where they're actively extravasating from something you can't control externally. Mm -hmm. Those are the ones. Non-compressible hemorrhage. Yep. Those patients are priority number one to be transported somewhere with both blood and IR, surgeon, etc. Uh, one other one that uh, is pretty, pretty low yield, but um, I think we overdo it, is not every patient needs a rectal exam. I would argue that I have never changed my management in the initial resuscitation based on the results of a rectal exam. So think about it. Um, most patients that have a head injury um, and a suspected spinal cord injury have had medications that make your rectal exam obsolete. That's one. Uh, patients that are awake, you have all the other sensory and motor tests to do on them before you need a rectal tone, right? It, it's really, it's simply for prognostication of their level of injury. Um, and it should only be done by the neurosurgeon that's going to determine that because they're going to do it regardless, right? And there's absolutely no standardization for what's normal tone. Really not being very considerate of our patient's dignity when doing that. And it, it, especially when it's something that is not going to help them. What point of that assessment makes any sense? None. So about as much as squeeze your butt cheeks together. Yeah, I mean, oh God, that's even <laughs> worse. <laughs> that is somehow worse. <laughs> yeah, that's not, <laughs> that's, I mean, that lack of understanding anatomy is, is, is mind blowing. Um, no, I'm not gonna lie, I've, I've said that one to prevent the other happening, but yeah, that's I mean, it's just a completely different, it's not, it's, it has nothing to do with a it. different thing, but, but yeah, I mean, same goes for, um, when you're assessing a trauma patient and you're pushing on their thoracic and lumbar spine, I mean, what, what are you doing for a penetrating trauma? You know, they're shot in the abdomen, what, what, what I mean, or the leg or the chest, what are you trying to figure out here? You know? Um, so I, I mean, at some point, we want people to do certain things the same way every single time, and I, I would understand that in, in, in places that don't see a lot of trauma, things like that. Um, but in a, in, a, in a higher level trauma center, we should be kind of understanding in more detail why those things are done the, the way they are. Um, and I'll be honest with you, like teaching ATLS has really kind of opened my eyes to a lot of these things that I didn't really used to think about. I'm like, well, why are we doing this? And then they have really good explanations for it and things like that. And it's important for us to really instill that in our trainees is like, why are you doing this test right now? Well, guys, I appreciate you coming today. Thank you for this. It's been great. Um, really great. I really yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so it. much. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Us. So, thanks. Hope to come back again. Will do for sure.